This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby, and Steve Keen joins us again in just a moment. And for as long as you care to go back, the economy has always had cycles, expansion and contraction, growth and recessions. And it seems no matter what government spending is introduced or how central banks play with interest rates, fiscal measures and monetary policy still won't stop that cycle. So can it be stopped? Well, as I say, Steve Keen is with us again. And look, if, if we really understood the economy, could we minimize the cycle so it's just a slightly wavy line without the hurt that's inflicted on us by the boom and bust cycle that until now seems to be an intrinsic part of any economy? So, Steve, I mean, you know, we have got a lot of governments and central banks that are, that are focusing a lot of effort on just that, reducing the strength of these cycles. But are we on, are we on a hiding to nothing? I mean, will they remain no matter what we, we try to do to stop them? Yeah, this is, this is the, I think, an area in which not just... Uh Neoclassical economics, the, the mainstream goes wrong, but a lot of the non-orthodox schools go wrong as well. Cycles are endemic to any living system. Now, this is something which uh, people just, if they don't have enough background in biology or they don't know enough about complex systems, and they sort of think you can make the economy work like clockwork. Now, I am sorry, it is not a machine. It is an evolutionary system. So you, you, have, to, you have to think about it as something which has biological-like features and in that world, instantly, that means cycles because you and I, I mean, you're, uh, what time is it? Uh, we, 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 you know, we're currently having a chat from Sydney to uh, London. Your biological clock is approaching evening. Mine is in the morning. I've just got over waking up. My melatonin levels are dropping. Yours will start rising in a short while, et cetera, et cetera. If you didn't have those cycles, you'd be in a very interesting state called dead. Yeah. Now, yeah. this, no, if this is if this is just on that, if this is a substandard podcast, that's because it's very early for you, and I'm starting to feel tired. We're both knackered, basically. There you go. Even our program goes in cycles. Even even our program goes in cycles. So cycles are a natural part of any complex system, and uh, and and the, the the vision that you can actually make the world, uh, make the economy reach a full employment equilibrium at which it stays indefinitely, uh, which is a fantasy of the neoclassicals, as and also a fantasy of a lot of people who call themselves Keynesian, uh, is just a fantasy because the economy, there will be partly for the argument that the Austrians make, which is quite valid, that the things you don't know will affect the economy and your high-level uh, perspective will not know that somebody is just about to invent levitation, for example. Um, then, and actually it's a serious comment given the microwave radiation research recently, um, that, that type of thing will cause a dramatic change in the economy uh, that you don't expect. So that's the Austrian explanation for it. But there's also an explanation which you can trace back right, right, right to a little very hairy bastard back in the uh, late 1800s called Karl. Uh, and he, uh, just by, in, in quite an uh, extraordinary passage in the middle of uh, Das Kapital, which was otherwise a critique of capitalism and something which also assumed absence of cycles in wages, uh, because that was, that was going to be relief. He was going to leave that for a, a second or third book that he never actually got around to writing. Uh, he wrote this, gave this little, very simple explanation talking about how 
let's say, let's say that there's a booming economy, so therefore there's very, very high employment, which means that workers can get high wage demands and they cut into what capitalists have as profits. So the capitalists will invest less, and because they invest less, uh, the rate of growth of the economy will slow down, which will mean that workers suddenly find themselves with higher unemployment, meaning they accept wage cuts, which restores profits to capitalists, which means they invest in Bangor in a cycle. And, right. uh, but but, it, but taking that as an example, though, and, and, yeah. I mean, can't you foresee that happening? I mean, it's it's like <laughs> Keynesian, Keynesian economics says, you know, we, we should invest if there's uh, if if there's uh, if it looks like the private sector spending less, then the government should spend should spend more, and you know, you try and even things out that way. I mean, can't you foresee that and do that sort of in, injection of uh, of capital to try and stop those, if not to stop those boom bust cycles or the all those cycles, at least to, to shallow, make them make them shallower. You can attempt to make them shallower, but the trouble is, economists have this fantasy about eliminating completely and reaching this equilibrium point because they don't know how to think in genuinely dynamic terms. Now, that that cycle I mentioned a moment ago that applies even if workers are instantaneously reaction to the, reacting to the current level of unemployment in their wage demands. So it's not dependent upon time lags or lack of knowledge of how long it takes you to learn something. It's something simply endemic. Uh, it's, it's exactly if people know anything about that. Remember their old trigonometry from school. Uh, you worked out what sine and cosine were. They were always 90 degrees out of phase. And this, this similar sort of thing applies here. This is something which happens because the, the, the phase movements in employment uh, are interact like in a sine cosine type of way with the phase movements in wages share. And when you model this model, which was done first by a, a, a great neglected economist called Richard Goodwin in 1967. Uh, he called it a growth cycle because he, he put together this model exactly following the argument that, that Marx had. But you can actually derive this model, and I've, this is what I now do when I teach my students. You can derive the model directly from the definitions of wages share of GDP, which is basically wages divided by GDP, and uh, employment, which is number of workers have got a job divided by population. You take that, do with the simplest possible operation in dynamics, which is to differentiate those in respect to time, whack in the simplest possible definitions you can of, of, uh, of you know, capital output ratios and, and, uh, and workers' wage demands, and bang, you get a cycle. So the cyclical nature of the economy is, is simply endemic. Now, when you add in other elements to the economy, such as the fact we have banks who lend money to finance investments, et cetera, et cetera, you get much more complex cycles again. And then when you have the government in there, well, the government is going to be reacting to uh, inf its information with a time lag. But even in models of mine where I've built the, the government reacting instantaneously to the, currently, to the current rate of unemployment in their, in their uh, policy settings, that gives you cycles. So, mm. so it is even, even instantaneous is too late. Even instantaneous, yeah. It's, and, of course, if you add in the fact that there are actually sub substantial time lags, between you know when when the government reacts to what it thinks is the unemployment rate, it's it's three months to six months out of date, and even then it's poorly recorded. Uh, and the the government response, if you got a, a policy response, it itself will be have a different time lags. And all this stuff is something which you know I'm I'm, I'm not um, you know spinning off new wondrous gems here. I'm basically reciting what you can find in the works of one Bill Phillips of the Phillips Curve in the 1960 1950s, because before he wrote the Phillips Curve thing, he actually was He's an engineer, and he's basically applied engineering thinking to economics and said that because of these phase differences, you will have cycles in the system no matter what. 
Now, what you can do is try to attenuate those cycles, but you can't eliminate them. Right. And then the question is, how do you do that? How do you attenuate them? Of course, the, the way uh, governments or uh, reserve banks tackle that is now is by uh, setting inflation targets. I guess this is, you know, they, they, they have a point at which they want to aim for. I mean, is that the, I mean, uh, if you, if you've got a cycle and you want, you want to try and minimize it, I, I guess there's a, there's a few key pointers you want to look for. And then there's actions you're going to take. Are, are they, taking the right approach on that i mean this this no. uh, this, inf- this inflation targeting no. uh, the infl- inflation targeting again came out of an equilibrium vision of the economy and they seriously believe that the economy has three magic numbers so there's the basic one they wanted the interest rate to be four percent the rate of, the real rate of growth of the economy to be three percent and the rate of inflation to be two percent and they think they can hit those those three numbers simultaneously by varying the rate of interest this is the, the basis of uh, uh, what are called the Taylor rule, but also the uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that completely led economists astray before the financial crisis hit. So you simply can't control a complex system like that with an inflation target alone. And in fact, when I do my modeling, which is based on genuine dynamics, that leads to, to serious crises because uh, you're ignoring in setting that target, you're ignoring the credit system and you're ignoring the distribution of income. Now, both of those blow those, that particular uh, form of attempt to control the cycles of capitalism out of the water. And, uh, and it, it, it is a combination of things. If you're going to try to manage in a system which is inherently cyclical, then you have to have a system of modelling that appreciates that it's inherently cyclical. If you think it tends to equilibrium and you try to control it by tools like inflation targeting, you're in a hiding to nothing to lose. You're, you might appear to be winning at, at some time because of the endogenous cycles on the system itself. And that's what I found with the financial crisis. Because when I did my, my modelling back in 1992 of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, one thing that came out of that was as the system was heading towards a crisis, the cycles in inflation and unemployment actually diminished. And when, of course, this is what happened in the real world, the so-called great moderation. Before the crisis occurred, there was a decline in the cycles in employment and a decline in the cycles in inflation. Economists took that as a good sign. And I looked at it and I thought, hey, this looks disgustingly like my model. There's something dangerously dangerous going on here. Uh, the diminished diminution in cycles is actually a prelude to a crisis in the models I put together. And that's partly why I came out with my warnings back in 2006 about a crisis approaching. So um, we're a long way from being able to abolish what economists don't actually know is a a common feature of a complex system. Well, yeah, it is a complex system. And but it's also cycles are and it sounds like I'm stating the obvious cycles are cyclical. So doesn't there isn't there an element of predictability about it? It's just that we don't know what what the factors are that are driving it. Uh, And if we do that sort of complex analysis, we get to grips with that. And so we have a clearer understanding. It's not as though, you know, cycles have a regularity to them. So presumably there are key factors that are driving those cycles and we can identify them, then we can moderate them. We can moderate them to some extent. That's why when I model the financial economy without a government, then what happened to cycles, as I said, they started to diminish and then exploded because what was actually going on in the background was a huge increase in debt, which meant a gigantic redistribution of income initially from, from workers to bankers but when bankers ended up burning virtually everything, it was then a transfer from capitalists to bankers and the system collapsed uh, into, a, into a black hole of private debt. When I added a government sector to it, which, where the government spent uh, 
spent more money with the unemployment rate was high and less if it was low, and, and just simply you had a very mechanical reaction to the, to that that cycle in in uh, in employment and inflation in the real economy. What you got was a system which is still cyclical, but it didn't lead to a breakdown. So the rises rises and falls in in government spending offset the falls and rises in private spending, changing what was happening with the rises and falls and the trend in private debt. And you no longer get that explosive trend in private debt. You didn't have a breakdown. So the real target is not is not to eliminate cycles, but to attenuate them. And my, my favorite analogy here for my students is the air conditioning system. You cannot, with an air conditioning system, make the temperature constant in a room given varying temperatures outside the outside the room itself. Uh, and and so what you want to do is minimise the the variability of the temperature using the air conditioning system, and that's a similar thing I think about government. Right, but that, I mean that is a, a huge difference, isn't it? I mean, having the air conditioning system stops you going up to uh, forty or forty-five degrees in your uh, in your front room, and the same as you know uh, here in the the midst of England, you know the uh, the heating is going to stop us at uh, stop us reaching minus minus three degrees or minus five or whatever d- d- frightful temperature is going to be tonight. So uh, I mean. That's a big moderation that's happening there. So to do that, could can we moderate the economy so much, still accepting there's going to be minimal cycles without people feeling the hurt? Because that presumably is is what wants to be achieved. You know, is not to have this uh, massive uh, sections of the population with with uh, high levels of unemployment or uh, people who just don't have enough money to be able to have. A basic standard of living. They're, they're the things we want to get rid of um, by minimising these cycles, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But then what it also requires is for the, is the policymakers themselves to realise that's their objective. Because if you look at what's happened to economic policy over the last 40 years, uh, okay, I guess go back 70 years, back to the, the Second World War and the Great Depression, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, the emphasis of policymakers was on avoiding mass unemployment and making sure that the working, the mass of the population, which is the working class and uh, the, the bottom of the middle class gets a substantial uh, income, so that they feel socially and personally invested in the success of capitalism. Because if that didn't happen, uh, old Joseph Stalin was likely to take over the system. So, so with that, with that combination of pressures, you had policy documents like because I, I know the Australian situation better than the European, of course. But to quote from the, what's called the White Paper on Employment, uh, written in Australia, I think in 1945 or 46, by a brilliant. Uh, a public service economist called Nugget Coombs, uh, and this is a direct quote as far as I can reconstruct it in my, in my memory, uh, the intent of government policy is to maintain such pressure on employment as to guarantee a shortage of jobs, so a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs. Okay, so if that's to take the language into account for the generation, I mentioned it, men and women, but a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs. And, and that was all about keeping employment high and keeping wages high and growing and workers sharing in the prosperity. Now, because that policy actually worked in the 50s and 60s and because private debt had been driven to such a low level as well by uh, by, the, by the Second World War and, and the Great Depression beforehand, uh, that worked a treat. And what you had was high employment and lower cycles in employment as well. Uh, but, of course, what happened over time was rising inflation and that became the excuse for Milton Friedman's monetarism to come forward and that assumed that capitalism naturally reached a perfect, perfect nirvana state and all the mistakes came from government behaviour. And that led to the catastrophe we've, been, we've, just, we've just entered into in 2007, 2008. 
So you've got to be aware you're cyclical all the time and not 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 fall for ideologues like like Friedman. And how much of it is correcting that cycle? And how much of it is uh, through fiscal policy, and how how much of it is from monetary policy? And and when I mean, we do hit times, don't we? I think America might be hitting it this year. Where the two aren't necessarily hand in hand. I mean, what you, you, you know, you were talking about when you've got times of high unemployment, that is the time, you know, to, to, you've got to do the opposite of what has been done. You know, it's not the time for austerity. It's the time for governments to inject money. It's a time for some sort of fiscal stimulus, which Trump has realized. Obviously, that's, that's what needs to happen. The money needs to be pumped into the economy. Um, so isn't it more fiscal? I guess my question is, isn't it more fiscal measures than the jobs of the, isn't it more the job of the government than the jobs of reserve banks to try and minimize these cycles? Yeah, absolutely. Not the way, that, not the way they'd see it though. The reserve banks would see it their job. Absolutely. And this is, uh, this, this is where Milton Friedman's era has led to because all this stuff that we've got with, you know, with the idea that central banks control the economy just by varying the rate of interest grew out of this belief that the, uh, monetary uh, policy only affected the rate of inflation, or that the government government spending only affected the rate of inflation. The economy naturally reached full employment, and so the government's meddling has just resulted in high inflation. And that's literally, the, the, even though it's flatly contradicted by the data every way you can possibly look at it, that became the, 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 the mantra of mainstream economists because that's what their models do. So if you, the whole idea that fiscal policy is absolutely ineffective, you'll find that actually written into the same economics that led to the financial crisis. Uh, people who feel like Sargent uh, and Wallace and a whole range of conventional American economists literally argued that the government could not affect uh, the economy for even one period, quote-unquote, uh, because the, 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 the population would respond to whatever the government is trying to do with perfectly countering uh, moves. So if the government tried to be spending, the private sector would reduce it and vice versa. Nonsense like that. Just sheer bloody nonsense. But believed by these guys because it's part of the economic theory they, that they came from, which gave them an ideology in some ways they weren't even conscious of. But you, 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 once you say that, that's, that, that uh, that's just a totally unrealistic description of the real world, then yes, fiscal policy actually is more important than monetary policy, and you've got to have at least both if not more policies in there. But they do tend to play one against the other, don't they, at times, you know, where the, uh, the the Reserve Bank is trying to counter those measures which are being taken. I mean, we could find that, you know, uh, two or three interest rate rises uh, in the United States this year at a time when uh, the government is pumping money into the into the economy, and uh, that could be counter to the, the effects that the government's trying to achieve. Yeah, and this is, again, because they're leaving up major elements of the real world and mainstream economic models. So... They're still waking up to the fact that private debt matters. I'm slowly seeing some awareness rising there. But, of course, their interest rate model basically assumes that increasing interest rates will reduce investment uh, and, uh, and increase current consumption and that the fiscal policy will affect – now they're admitting it does have an effect. They'll say, well, it'll affect current spending. Uh, they don't see any, any problem with the rising level of private debt once more. And so if you whack a few interest rates up, and you're not aware that that's dramatically increasing the repayment burden on well, – or you're aware it's increasing the repayment burden. What they don't realize is that if people stop borrowing that money in the private sector, there will be a sudden slump in demand. And that's what, that's what will hit them uh, if they start putting rates up. If they, if, if they try to get back to their – literally, they've got, they've got a target of 4% for the – sorry, of, of 4% for the reserve bank interest rate. That's what they want to reach. 
Now, if they imposed a 4% target on the, uh, on the economy, that would mean that the 4% with a, with a debt level of 1.5 times GDP, you're basically paying 6% of GDP in debt servicing. Now, they think there's no problem with that because they think, well, the people who are receiving the, the payments can, can spend to counter the lack of spending by those who've got the payments. But what will then happen is there'll be a, a, a slight, sudden slowdown in the rate of growth of demand for new debt. And that is actually what knocks the wheels off their off their system because when that credit based demand disappears, the economy goes into a slump. So does they, so does this mean then that um, you know the idea of separating out reserve banks and making them independent from government was that a mistake? It was a mistake. Uh, it's I think the trouble is it, it would, would have worked if they understood how the economy operates. <laughs> of course, they thought they did. And right. I'm but actually, I mean, that's a, that, but that's a problem. Not just I mean, that's a problem for the governments as well, of course. Absolutely, yeah. In, in both, they're all following a false theory. If you're trying to manage something as complex as capitalism with a naive theory about how it functions, you're going to end up with economic crises all the time. Just when you think you've got the system sorted out, uh, so that that's where a real problem is. If economists were experts, then it would make sense to say, let's hand it over to the experts. But because they're experts on a model of the economy which is fundamentally wrong. They're opposite of experts on the system they're actually trying to manage. Right. And I guess it is better to have a team of people who are there in situ doing the same job forever rather than in politics where you get someone who's, who's drafted into becoming the, uh, the treasurer and all of a sudden has, this, uh, has acquired this knowledge having looked after education or health or something before, before they land that role. So uh, maybe yeah. we need someone doing the job all the time. But I mean, the, so the question I'm leading to is, um, you know, I, the, the best, what is the best structural approach to try and, even though we can't get rid of the cycles, um, you know, assuming that the, there was the right fundamental approach and, and understanding of how the economy really worked, who should be driving this? Who should be responsible for saying, well, okay, we can't get rid of the boom-bust cycle, but we can certainly make it shallower than it has to be? Well, you have to, I think you want to think about it. What are, you, what are your objectives for the, the social system that the economy is embedded in? What are you trying to achieve? And the answers are you trying to achieve a, a high level of employment and a, and a relatively stable monetary system at the same time. So in that case, you say, well, comp- looking at it as a complex system now, what does that entail? And from what, again, this is all working from something that's informed from modelling. Uh, the dynamic modelling that I look at, you have to have a government that sticks to its employment targets. It doesn't modify them as the economy itself modifies its situation. So if you go back to the 1950s, for example, the government in America would terrify whenever the unemployment rate exceeded 4%. Or 5%, or well, 4% actually, more, more lowered again. Now that they're, they're quite happy with their unemployment rate, which on occasions hit uh, 10%. Um, so you, you have to say, this is our target, we're sticking to it. And then with the inflation side of things, you have to look at what's happening in credit based demand as well as the, as well as the, the system affected by government spending. So it, it isn't, isn't straightforward, it isn't easy, and in, in fact, things can go wrong. But you've got to be looking at the overall system, which includes the financial sector, which, of course, they left out of their models, and that's what bit them on the bum in 2006. And even so, if you do that, you've still got other things to cope with. The information stuff that the Austrians talk about is, is important, but also what's happening. I think there's a long-term trend. We might talk about this one in a later show, a long-term trend towards declining employment simply because of the increase in capacity to reduce output with, with uh, capital and energy rather than with labor. And that's something yeah. you simply can't fight that with a cyclical policy. You've got to look 
uh, it, much more long-term structural things like do you bring back in a universal basic income, for example. So um, it's the, running the economy, even if you understand how it operates better than the neoclassicals do, it's still a very, very complex thing. Right. And, and I guess that's the answer, isn't it? You've, we've got to realise how complex it is. And presumably one team tackling that, this idea that uh, you've got fiscal policy sitting in the hands of government and uh, the monetary policy sitting in the hands of the Reserve Bank, it, surely it's got to be one body looking after all of it, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, they've got to be communicating with each other. And, and, and largely the central bank didn't care about the Treasury because in their models the Treasury had no impact. Now, of course, they were, we'd like you to do some spending. We, we think it's really got to do some spending. Uh, why don't you do some spending? Because uh, we've and given up. Yeah, they're talking, to, yeah. they're talking to a brick wall because they've got to get through the politicians first and, and the economists they've staffed the Treasury with, from what I can tell in England at least. I've still got to meet some of them, but I've heard enough of this from, from my academic and political and, and, and Bank of England circles, frankly. Uh, they're, not all that, uh, they're, they're not all that experienced. They're, they're straight out of mainstream thinking. Uh, they, they're they young. They, the average age of the Treasury is a lot younger than the average age of the Bank of England. Uh, they don't have that, that long-term historical memory. And they still believe in the, in the models that tra- the, the, the Bank of England's woken up to and said, these don't work, guys. We've got to do something else. So, uh, yeah, being in two separate bodies now is biting the Reserve Banks on the bum because they're the ones, certainly in the Bank of England's case, that have woken up to the fact that their model didn't describe reality accurately and that's why they had a crisis hit them sideways. Right, so they're the ones who are learning from their experience. Well, look, I guess uh, maybe it'll change uh, over this year because one man who is changing the thinking is Donald Trump, and we'll talk about that next time. Uh, for the moment, though, Steve, I appreciate your time, as always, and we'll catch you again later in the week. Okay, mate, look forward to it. Yes, it is a Trump inauguration week, so we will be talking about that next time. And don't forget to tell your friends about us as well. DebunkingEconomics.com is the place you can find us. Get them to subscribe. Thank you for subscribing, and we'll see you again in a few days. I'm Phil Dobby. See you soon. 